look at Psalm 73 this morning, so if you'd like to turn there, go ahead. We have a little bit of housekeeping to do before we get there. Last week, uh, Todd offered to you that if you could identify in Psalm 119, which has 176 verses, the one verse that does not have some derivative of the law or the word or whatever in it, um, that I would buy you a cup of coffee. It was pretty nice of him, wasn't it? Well, um, <clears throat> a few people have, uh, have approached me on that. Some of them are just making guesses. And so you only get one guess. So if you're wrong, you're wrong. Um, and if you think you know the answer, you can see me after uh, the service here, and I'll give you a coffee token. And um, I just want to say that Todd told me which verse it was. So if you think it's the wrong verse and you disagree, take that up with him. Now, in fairness, um, in fairness, I think I should make an offer to you as well. So when Todd gets back from vacation in a few weeks, if you are able to, uh, to find the shortest verse in the Bible and to say it to him, I think he'll buy you a new car. So we'll work on that and hopefully everything will, will work out just fine. In the summer of um, 1960, I began a short but very intense love affair with the New York Yankees. I just, uh, they became my team. Not because I played baseball, because I, I did like baseball, but, uh, well, I liked fielding, and I liked catching and throwing and running, but I couldn't hit the curve. First time somebody threw a curveball at my head, I, I, I literally hit the ground, <laughs> and, and it was a strike. So... Um, you know, that's just how that goes. Um, but the reason that uh, I decided to adopt the Yankees as my team really had to do with my uncle, my uncle Ronald, who was um, in the Navy, and he was home that summer, 1960, on furlough, and that was always a party when he was home. He sent me up uh, almost every other, every other day to get Pepsi and ice cream, and we had Pepsi and ice cream, which was, you know, just not common in my house when I was growing up. And we had a party. He loved to sing, tell jokes, laugh. And so whatever was his team was my team. And we watched baseball that summer. Um, and then he went back uh, into active service. And I was uh, heartbroken that fall in October when the Pittsburgh Pirates beat the Yankees in the World Series. For heaven's sakes, the Pittsburgh Pirates. First of all, who, who would ever cheer for a team named the Pirates in those days over the Yankees? And secondly, who would be in favor of a team from Pittsburgh? You know, who would ever be a fan of any team from Pittsburgh? So the Pittsburgh Pirates won, but uh, the Yankees went on the next year. 1961 was their best year. Roger Maris hit uh, 61 home runs. Maris, Mantle, Bobby Richardson, Elston Howard, Yogi Berra, Whitey Ford. I remember all those guys, and, and it was just a, a great time. In 1962, I was in the seventh grade, and I was um, a decent student, mostly because I was afraid of flunking out, and uh, I went to school every single day, and my mother uh, picked up on the fact that I was a Yankees fan and that I had been doing a good job and got good grades, and so she decided she would reward me with one day off school to watch the World Series, which the Yankees were playing the uh, San Francisco Giants, and um, I got to pick the day. So that, that just sounded great. There was one little problem in the form of my little brother. 
And my little brother thought that whatever I got, he should get. Always. No matter what it was. And he had radar about this. So if he picked up on the fact that I might be getting a privilege, then for sure he should get the same privilege. So he knew something was up, but we didn't tell him. And uh, my mom decided that day she would take us to school, which was already kind of a tip that something was unusual because I, he usually walked and I rode the bus. And, and uh, so she took us to school. And I remember we dropped my brother off. He was in the third grade, I think, at his elementary school. And he stood at the corner and didn't go in. He just glared at us. And uh, my mother, so that she would be true to her word, took me to school and then turned around and came back. But um, she was curious about what happened to my brother if he had actually gone into the school. And so we drove by and sure enough, there's my brother still on the corner, still, still burning holes in everything he, with his eyes that he could see. And then he knew something. Well, we, we went on home and uh, about 15 minutes later, in comes my brother to the back door. I'm sure he didn't walk or run. I'm sure he stomped the three blocks home. He flopped down at the kitchen table and he said words that I'm sure everyone here has used and will use and will hear from your kids. That's not fair. That's not fair, Mom, that uh, Dave gets to stay home and watch the Yankees. Well, um, I won't tell you the rest of the story except to say that my brother went back to school and I got to watch the Yankees. And I think uh, some 45 years later, he still thinks it's not fair. And uh, my mom, who's Scotch and Irish both, um, hadn't backed down one, one uh, inch from the fact that she did the right thing. That's not fair. You know, if you Google that phrase, you get 30 million plus hits. So you know that's a popular phrase. A lot of people think that's not fair or think in those terms at some time in their life. What's interestingly, interesting to me is if you Google the ultimate parental response to that phrase, you will get something like 25 million hits for life's not fair, including one from um, Bill Gates in which he addressed a, a group of, of uh, graduating seniors and his first thing was, uh, life's not fair, get used to it. His last one uh, out of 11 was, be nice to the nerds because you might work for one someday. <laughs> So um, that's not fair. Life's not fair. Those are uh, part of our psyche. And I think they're okay to a certain degree. The psalm that we're going to look at this morning was written by a man named Asaph, Psalm 73. He was, um, of all things, uh, a choir director. There were three in the court of David. I think they probably had one uh, praise and worship, one traditional hymns and one country western, I don't know, or, you know, something like that. Um, but Asaph was not just a, uh, um, a, a music person. He was also a deep thinker. He wrote 12 of the Psalms, and uh, that's second only to David for the number of Psalms by one author. So he did a lot of thinking about different subjects. As it happens, Asaph's uh, 11 of his Psalms opened the third book, the third section of the book of Psalms. Remember, Todd told us last week that the book of Psalms is divided into five different sections. The third section starts with 73. And the first uh, couple of books of the Psalms deal a lot with personal issues and personal events and uh, personal feelings. And then the later Psalms deal a lot more with, uh, with larger themes. God is good. And if God is good, how can he be good? And how does that express itself? And things like that. Asaph was that kind of a thinker. Now, he comes to the Psalms 
um, with a perspective about fairness. Before we get to that, let me just say this. There is a very, very short distance between that's not fair and you're not fair. When you think about it, what my brother was really saying to my mom was, you're not being fair. You're not fair or that's not fair could mean a lot of different things. It could mean, you know, I didn't get what I thought I deserved. Could mean uh, somebody got a bigger piece of the pie than I did. Could mean um, my expectations uh, in life just aren't playing out the way that I think they should. So that's just not fair. But it's not far from saying that's not fair to you're not fair. If you get a piece of pie and I get a piece of pie and yours is bigger than mine, somebody cut the pie. And so somebody is responsible for you getting a bigger piece of the pie, and that's the person that's not fair. You're not fair. And Aesop's going to say to us that he came very close to saying to God, you're not fair. You're not fair to me, as he looked around the world. Now, that's a very, very dangerous conclusion to draw, and I hope we can see that this morning. Let's pray as we look at God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you open our eyes to see what you want us to see, beautiful things from your law. Open our hearts so that uh, we will, we will hagah, we'll eat that up, we'll devour it and make it a part of our life, and then help us to live it out in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. Asaph uh, op- opens the, uh, the 73rd Psalm with a, a, a very strong affirmation. It's a good foundational thing for him to say. Surely, he says, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Israel were the people of God. And so by extension, he's talking to all who are pure in heart, who seek God with a pure heart. And for him to start out with this word, surely, is like saying, if nothing else in the world is true, this is true. This is something you can bank on. You can hang your hat on. It's firm. It will never change. God is good to the pure in heart. So that's a great way to start. But then he goes on to say, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. I got close to the edge and I almost fell off. I almost lost my grip on this foundational truth that I hold by faith, that God is good. Almost let go of it. Why? He says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I looked around. I looked around and it looked to me like the people uh, that were arrogant and proud were getting away with everything in life and things were going great for them. And I looked at that and... I envied them. I said, why does that work out for them? And I was tempted to say, you're not fair. Here's how he described the, the arrogant. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. And therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil deceits, conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, people turn to them and drink up their waters in abundance, and they say, 
How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. He looked around and he said, something's wrong with this picture. These people have no problems. They're arrogant. They're evil. They're malicious. They're proud, boastful. And they're popular. They're shameless. They're impudent. And yet their lives are carefree and they prosper. That just doesn't add up. That's not fair. Adding insult to injury, he says this. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Things go great for them. All I get is trouble and trouble and more trouble. They are oblivious to what's right and wrong, and my conscience is alive and active all the time. And I try to do what's right, and what do I get for it? You're not fair. Now, Asaph says, if I had said this, if I had let those words form on my mouth, I will speak thus. I would have betrayed your children. You know, there's something about not only um, having a conviction in your heart or thoughts in your heart, but when you speak them, that they become a little bit more real. Because sometimes when we say something, we have to defend it as if we really believe it. That's why confession is a pretty strong thing, something we need to do. And he said, if I had spoken that way, I would have betrayed God's children. And if I betrayed God's children, that means I would have betrayed God. Before we go to um, a shift in Asaph's thinking, I want you to just think with me about this. God takes seriously what you and I say about him. On the front of your bulletin today, we quoted from the Ten Commandments. You should not misuse the name of your, the Lord your God, and that God will not hold him innocent who does that. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Now, sometimes we just, we just reduce that down to, well, don't slip and say, oh God or, you know, this or that, or just, just be careless with God's name. I think it's a lot deeper than that. I think it's the sin that uh, Asaph felt he had almost fallen into, that he would say God is not fair, is to take God's name in vain. It's to ascribe to God something that's not part of his character, not part of his nature, not even part of our real experience with God. I'll tell you how seriously God takes his name and the way that we talk and think about him. This is from the book of Malachi in chapter 3. And the people of God had come back from captivity and they hadn't quite really reestablished their relationship with God strongly. And God says to him, I have some things against you. He says, why don't you return to me? And they said, well, okay, we'll return to you. But, but what does that mean? And he says, well, you have to straighten a couple of things out. First of all, return to me means stop robbing me. Turn your tithes and your offerings in and, and then see, trust me with that and see if I won't bless you, if I won't bless your nation and you individually. And then he says this. He says, you've said harsh things against me. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly, 
The evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. That's what they were saying. That's what they were thinking. And God says, that's a harsh word against me. Because it can't be true. And it isn't true. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard, and a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence. Concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name, they will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make, take, make up my treasured possession. I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. God takes seriously how we talk about him. Asaph says, when I looked at this situation and I looked at the fact that it looks like the arrogant get away with it, that the arrogant prosper and the righteous suffer, it just drove me crazy. I tried to understand all this and it was oppressive to me. The message translates it, it gave me a headache, a splitting headache. I can't make sense of it up here. Until... He says, I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground and you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Something happened to help Asaph change his mind and regain his perspective. And the thing that happened was he entered the sanctuary of God. The first time uh, I read this, and for a long time when I read this, I thought that that meant that maybe Asaph had come to a really quiet place. You know, that be still and know that I am God. And maybe his sanctuary was someplace of solitude and where he was alone. And believe me, I believe there's a place for that, for all of us, that it's a vital part of our existence and of our spiritual life to find solitude and quiet and listen to the voice of God. But really, the sanctuary was identified as a holy place, and the most holy place to a Jew is the temple. And the temple was not necessarily a quiet place. What happened at the temple? Well, there were sacrifices made, animals being slaughtered, and they were cooked. And so there was the aroma of an open fire and meat um, cooking on that open fire. There were people that came in in processionals with music and dancing and uh, tambourines and instruments and lots of uh, celebration of God. There were teachers, rabbis, you know, in different pockets who would be teaching God's Word. And when they taught God's Word, it wasn't with, you know, just quiet reason. It was with passion and with enthusiasm and with energy and heart they taught God's word so there were sounds and there were sights and there were smells and there were things going on all the time kind of reminds me of coming to church I love it that there's a lot of a lot of chaos at church there are a lot of great sounds there's the sounds of people talking to each other and fellowshipping with each other there's the great smell of coffee there's the uh, there's the, the, the sound of children crying downstairs and other children playing and enjoying and laughing and listening to their teachers. And there's people all over the place doing different things. And then we come in here and there's music and we sing and we listen. And there's just this whole great cacophony, a symphony 
of life and of sounds. And that's the place for me where I meet God. One of them anyway. That's the place where my spirit is re-energized. And where I experience the presence of God in your presence because he's here. And I think the psalmist is saying the same thing. I went into the temple, the sanctuary, and it revived my spirit. And I began to look at things differently. And I saw people that seem to have it made don't have it made. People that have a lot have a lot to lose. And they can lose it quickly. And people that have a lot and seem to prosper um, that are arrogant, they worry about how to keep it. So they're not necessarily happy all the time either. And the same things that happened to me happened to them. So my perspective was off. And really, really, if you think about it, the arrogant and the proud who have prospered by evil, all they've got is right here. All they've got is right here in this world right now. And I have something that's so much greater, so much deeper, so much more real. It's the presence of God in my heart. And I know him and I walk with him. He says, um, my heart was grieved and my spirit was bittered. I was senseless and arrogant. I was like a brute beast that didn't have a brain. And then he says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Isn't that great? It's not really my hand that holds on to God because my hand can lose its grip. It's his hand that holds on to me. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. I'll get old, I'll get sick, this body will waste away. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What they have is very, very small. It's very, very trivial. It's very, very fleeting. Compared to what's available to people whose heart is pure before the Lord and who live in a vital relationship with Him who experience His presence in the assembled body of Christ, who experience His presence day by day as He gives us the capacity to make good decisions. Did you think you were that smart? No. No, who experience God's presence uh, in multiple ways. And that presence of the Lord and Him in our hearts and Him part of our lives, that relationship is worth more than anything in this world. So, he says, I had to get my head straight. And to get my head straight, I had to get my heart straight. And to get my heart straight, I had to spend some time in the presence of the Lord. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. And I will tell of your deeds. There's a wonderful, wonderful poem. It was written in 1922 by a lady named Rhea Miller. Um, and a lady named Beverly Shea discovered this poem. She had a son who was um, growing up, and, and as he grew up, it was evident that he had a gift for music. He was a, a phenomenal singer, even though he didn't really study music or, or formally train his voice. He was just a great singer. His name is George. She put this poem out by the piano one day, just hoping that George would see it, because she wanted, she wanted him to make right decisions in his life, but she didn't want to be a mother who um, controlled her son. And he found the poem. And he found the poem and it impressed him so much that he sat down and began to tinker at the piano and he wrote music to the poem 
and turned it into a song. The song is called I'd Rather Have Jesus. And the guy who wrote it was George Beverly Shea. Some of you young people won't know who that guy is, but he became um, the lead singer, the, the, the voice um, of music with the Billy Graham crusade. And he made a decision in his life to forget about a career in music. He was offered a contract by NBC for, to be a recording uh, artist. And instead, he went with the Billy Graham crusade because, in part, of this poem that he turned into a song. It says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. He's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. That's the conclusion that Asaph came to. I'd rather have the presence of the Lord than anything. You know, when your cup is full of good, you don't worry. You don't envy anybody. You just are glad for what you have. You want to share it. You want to experience it. You want to savor it. I'm going to close with just this thought, and that is that despite everything I've just said, there is a sense in which we can say God is not fair. He's a lot better than fair. Psalm 145, there are a few statements that are worth our attention. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him, and he hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but the way of the wicked he will destroy. Asaph ends his, his psalm as saying, It's good for me to be near God, and I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. I'm not going to say to people, God's not fair. I'm going to say, look what God has done. Look what God has done for you and for me. That's the message that we have to share. We're going to stand together and pray and close our service. We want to invite you, if you, um, if you need prayer, you need somebody to pray with you. Maybe um, you want to refresh in your soul. Maybe um, you're carrying a burden. Maybe you've got a problem. Maybe you just want to praise God. There's some people down here that want to pray with you, so you join us down here. And if you think you know the answer to the um, trivia question, Come on and see me. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you this morning that you are more than fair, that you're so much better than fair. And we pray, Lord, that we will um, find the time and the ways, that we'll make the time and make the ways to, to devour your presence, to know you better and deeper and to walk with you every single day. In Jesus' name.